That is a, a comment that is often made by nominal Christians and non-believers when they come to a funeral or a memorial service for a believer in this church. The comment is often made, we have never been to a funeral like this before. And if I heard this once through the years, I've heard it a hundred times. While they often do not know and don't even ask or comprehend why the reason for having an uplifting and uh, great worship time and, and celebration in many ways, we know the secret. And it's found in verse 13 of chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians. Turn to it with me as we continue in this series of messages. Verse 13 says, We do not grieve like those who are without hope. See, the Bible does not say we do not grieve. Paul does not say that we don't grieve over our loved ones when they go to glory, that we don't shed tears over our loss, or that we don't feel deep sorrow in our hearts, or that we don't feel that emptiness that their departure brings. No. He said we just don't grieve like those who have no hope. Our grieving is very different. Our grieving is saying goodbye to someone whom we're going to meet again. And meeting again, make no mistake about it, we will. I've been saying throughout this series of messages from First Thessalonians, the reason for writing this epistle to begin with is that Thessalonian believers in that church were deeply troubled. They were confused about this whole issue of Christ's return to take the believers home to heaven. Their trouble and their confusion created deep anxiety, not only about their eternal future, but the future of the loved ones in Christ who died. They were really concerned. What happened to them? Those are the questions that were posed to the Apostle Paul, which he is answering in this epistle. What happened to them? Where are they now? Uh, will we see them again? And the Apostle Paul does not immediately go and answer their questions. He takes three and a half chapters <laughs> of saying other things before he gets to the answering of their question. And he first begins by showing them how to live this life in the light of that great day. How to live in sexual purity, in moral purity, how to live faithfully, how to be a steward. And he goes on and on, as we have been saying, and telling the believers that they've got to live every moment of every day of this life in the light of that great day. And then finally, he gets to that answer their questions. Beginning at verse 13 of chapter 4 of First Thessalonians. You see, Paul begins by showing deep understanding and sympathy for their bereavement over the loss of the loved ones. Paul does not rebuke their profound emotional shock over death. He doesn't do that. In fact, he does not minimize the fact that when we lose a loved one, we lose part of ourselves. He does not minimize the pain of having to radically readjust one's life after the loss of a loved one. He does not minimize the anguish that is accompanying those questions that they pose to him. And the truth is, Every time a believer goes to heaven, it should be a reminder for every one of us of our own mortality. 
It should be a reminder. It should help us to undermine this false sense of security that we're going to be here forever and we're never going to die. It's not going to happen to us. But in addition to all of that anxiety, some of the Thessalonians actually thought the return of Christ must be around the corner. So they gave up their jobs and they became idle. They just said, well, if he's going to come back, might as well not get up in the morning and go to work. (laughs) And to top it all, some of them thought that the parousia, or that's the Greek word for the return of Christ, that the parousia has come, has happened, and they missed out on it. Uh, Occasionally I come to the office and everybody's away for a meeting or whatever. I said, whoa, the rapture had come and I missed out. But they immediately assure me that uh, it has not happened. (laughs) But that's why in verse 13, Paul begins by saying, I don't want you to be uninformed. I don't want you to be ignorant. (laughs) I know it's a politically incorrect word, but let me tell you something. Ignorance is not a bliss. I know we joke about ignorance, but ignorance is not a bliss. Far from it. Ignorance brings about disastrous consequences. We're seeing it all around us. Uh, It's like the preacher who was tearing his heart out, telling the congregation that the troubles for our culture today are two in nature, ignorance and apathy. And then he leaned in the front of somebody sitting in the front pew and he said, is that not so? And the man said, I don't know and I don't care. You know, back in the early days uh, where they didn't have a lot of preachers, they were circuit riders, and so they had to license some lay people to preach, and you have to give them a license. And this country preacher went for his license, and so they asked him a question. And, Do you know what it means by the word procrastination? He thought for a minute, he said, no, but I believe it's something Presbyterians believe in. <laughs> you see, ignorance brings confusion. But enlightened knowledge brings a blessing. In fact, enlightened knowledge is a key to many blessings in life. Let me give you examples. Knowledge of God and the character of God as you get it from the Word of God brings you closer to Him. You'll know Him more. So when somebody who's confused and tell you God did this or God doesn't do this, and you say, no, I know God. Enlightened knowledge about our identity in Christ and who we are in Christ brings about true, healthy self-esteem, not the phony ones. (laughs) Knowledge of our eternal destiny causes us to live in peace even when we're facing troubles and turmoil in life. And what the Apostle Paul is saying, he's saying that we should not grieve because ignorance can cause us to grieve, but knowledge, enlightened knowledge does not grieve like them. And so we don't grieve like them, but rather our grieving is not a hopeless grieving. (laughs) And that's what knowledge does. It gives us that ability to grieve not like the hopeless ones. And that is the believer's death. He calls it sleep. You have to understand that when Semitic languages, in the Semitic languages, the verb to be is not often used. So they do shortcuts. And that is why so many people have misunderstood the Scripture, ended up in heretical stuff. For example, when Jesus said, this is my body, he was not giving them his flesh to eat. 
He said, this is my body. He could have said in the English, he would have said, this represents my body. In the same way, I grew up with the Semitic language, and if I take a picture of my grandson, I don't say, this is a picture of my grandson. I say, this is my grandson. It's just how the language is. And here when Paul said, death is sleep, he is saying, it's a metaphor to saying, death for the believer is like sleep. With all of what we understand about sleep, it is a temporary separation. We don't have a great fellowship while we're asleep. And we, we don't have, a, you know, a great time of conversation. Now, some people might talk in their sleep, but that's not... Um, we rest when we sleep. It's a state of temporary separation. Sleep is also a departure from what troubles us in life. You could have a, a bad day, and you're upset, and you're frustrated, and you've got problems... But then when you're blessed to go to sleep, what happens? All of that is forgotten while you're asleep. These are all the things that Paul is using in order to give you that metaphor about the death of the believer as a sleep. Now, there are some people who teach that when a believer dies, the soul goes to sleep. That is not biblical. I'm going to show you right now. It is not biblical. I'm going to, in fact, I'm going to show you from the Word of God, not my opinion. <laughs> the Bible teaches clearly, that the moment the believer checks out of here, goes straight to heaven. Example number one, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8. Absence from the body is at home where? With the Lord. Philippians 1, 23. Paul expressed a desire to depart and be with Christ. Why? It is far better. If his soul goes to sleep, how can it be better? <laughs> He's better staying alive and commune with the Lord through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. Luke 23, 43, Jesus promised the repentant man on the cross next to him. He said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Not when your soul wakes up from his sleep. In Matthew 17, 3, we see that Moses and Elijah were on the Mount of Transfiguration. So much so that Peter and the other two disciples recognized them. They were not ghosts. Uh, they were not uh, floating souls. They were in a glorified body. How else would they have recognized them? In Revelation chapter 6, verse 9, the Apostle John tells us that the martyrs are speaking in heaven. Above all, in Luke 16, 19, the Lord Jesus Christ himself taught us that the redeemed will immediately be in the presence of the Lord, while the unsaved immediately go into a state of conscious suffering and torment and pain immediately, not after the soul wakes up. And that is what Paul is talking about, that the death of the unsaved is without a hope. And that is why it is a hopeless death and hopeless funerals and, and hopeless memorial services. Their end is so terrifying hopelessness. Their end will have no place to escape from where they are. But those who are in Christ, they will experience blessed hope right away, glorious reward right away, and joyful eternity right away. In fact, there was a man by the name of Joseph Flex. He was a Messianic Jew, a Jew who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Messiah and the Savior. And I have many of those as my friends. And, and um, when uh, Joseph 
died, he died on August 14, 1940. But before he died, he went out and printed some cards to be mailed out to all of his friends and, and relatives. And the only thing that was left space in a blank on the card is the date of his death. He asked his family to fill in that space. And so it says, August 14, 1940. Triumphant through grace, this is to announce that I have moved out of the mud house. Second Corinthians 5, 2. I have arrived in glory land, escorted by angelic escorts. Luke 16, 22. Absence from the body, at home with the Lord. Second Corinthians 5, 6. In His presence, I've experienced a fullness of joy. Psalm 16, 11. We'll look for you on the way up. Romans 8, 23. <laughs> See, that is what the Christian death is all about. And that is why it's not hopeless. It is not helpless. And so, what does Paul really say about this parousia, this return of Christ, uh, uh, that rapture? Well, you see it, verses 14 to 15. Look at it in your Bibles. He says, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in Him. We tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. Far from fearing that those who have died will be at a disadvantage. Far from it. They'll be already with Him. They're going to show up with Him. Uh, they will be with Him on that great rendezvous in the sky. <laughs> because I want to tell you what the Apostle Paul is saying to every one of us is this, that our hope of the return of Christ to take us home to glory is not based on the shifting sands of philosophical speculation. It is not built on some religious mythology. It is not founded on fable that just make people feel good about death and feel it a little easy. No, 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 no. The truth is the Lord's return is based upon three unshakable foundations, three unshakable historical evidences. The death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, and the revelation of Christ. If you believe that Jesus died on a cross and rose again, even so. Say even so. Even so. Hear me right on this one. By virtue of his substitutionary death on the cross, by virtue of his death on our behalf on the cross, by virtue of him paying for the wages of our sin that we should have been paid, uh, by virtue of redeeming us on the cross, we have become accepted by God the Father and welcomed into his presence. That's what he's saying. It's not complicated. It's not complicated. But here's something it's going to bless your socks as it blessed my socks. <laughs> when Paul refers to the death of the believer, he calls it what? Sleep. Right. But then when he refers to the death of Christ, he calls it death. I want to tell you why I'm getting ready to shout here. <laughs> Do you know why? Do you know what that means? It means that Jesus experienced the full fury of death with all of its dimensions so that we may only sleep. 
that Jesus experienced the punishment of sin so that we may live to righteousness, that Jesus experienced death fully so that we may experience sleep. Jesus experienced death with all of its horrors so that we may experience joy in death. That He rose from the dead so that He may assure us of our own resurrection. That Jesus is triumphed over the grave so that we can have His triumph. That Jesus was never abandoned to the grave and now we too will never be abandoned to the grave. So whether you fall asleep or you're going to be around when Jesus comes back, it makes no difference. That's really the point Paul is making. It makes no difference. On that great day, we're all going to be united together. On that great event, we will all join in this momentous occasion. On that day, we will be united together without the possibility of separation ever again. Of that moment, the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 52, he said, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in a twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. Amen. So the question is, when will that great day take place? In the next message, I'm going to tell you exactly when. (laughs) The most exciting part, verses 16 and 17. As Paul describes what happens on that great day. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven. I'm telling you, I'm getting ready to shout because I know what I'm going to say. He says, the Lord himself, he did not say he's going to send a deputy, or he's going to send a representative, or he's going to send a prophet, or he's going to send an angel. No, sorry, the Lord himself is going to show up, and every eye is going to see him. And whether those who believed in him or not, they will see him. Some will mourn and some will rejoice. Just like the angel told the disciples on that great day of ascension, After the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, when their jaws were dropping, seeing the beloved Jesus with whom they lived for three years and one-third of a year, ascending up to heaven, he said to them, why are you looking up? This same Jesus, not another Jesus, not some Mahdi, not some Messiah, but that same Jesus whom you've seen taken from you, he will come back in like a manner. Amen belongs here. But that's not all. He says it's going to be a shout. There's going to be a shout. Let me tell you about that shout. That word has a military connotation. It has a military tone about it. And it is used by a commander who is summoning his troops. That's really where it is borrowed from. It's from the military world. That the commander is going to call his faithful soldiers. And they come immediately running. What that means to us is this. Listen carefully. Every one of Jesus' faithful soldiers are going to hear that shout. 
Every one of his faithful soldiers are going to respond to that shout. Every one of his faithful soldiers are going to rejoice for that shout. Every one of his faithful soldiers are going to leap for joy when they hear that shout. And then there is the voice of the archangel and the trumpet is going to sound. And this is going to be universally heard. It ain't going to be on CNN. It's going to be heard by everyone. Those who, the believers in Australia and Asia and in Africa and in Europe and, and in the Americas and the Pacific Islands and from every corner of the globe where there are faithful believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, they're going to hear the voice of the archangel. They're going to hear the trumpet as the trumpet sound. And in the Bible, the trumpet always used for a variety of reasons. But on that day, it's going to be all of the above. <laughs> Trumpets were used in the Old Testament to assemble people. It was used at times of feasts. It was used in the time of celebrations. The trumpet sound for the uh, commencements. The trumpet sounded when they were getting ready to make big announcement. The trumpet sounded when they make it clear that the time has come. The time has come for us on that day to say goodbye to this fallen world, to say goodbye to temptations and grief, to say goodbye to anxiety and fear and worry, to say goodbye to tears and to sorrow and to cancer. This time will come when we say goodbye to Satan's harassment of the believers. The time will say goodbye to sin and the ravages of sin. Frederick William Faber got so enraptured with the thought of the rapture, the great day, and he reached out for his pen and he wrote his famous hymn. Among other things, it says, Great things he has taught us, great things he has done, and great our rejoicing through Jesus the Son. Ah, but that's not enough. But purer and higher and greater will be our rapture, our transport when Jesus we see. In fact, the word rapture comes from the Latin word rapier or R-A-P-E-R-E. That word expresses a sense of suddenness, a sense of being snatched up quickly, a sense of being swept up. And we will be swept up together with them in the air. Here's something, and I plead with you, don't miss. Because it's troubled a lot of believers. Many of you have talked to me about this. I know it's an important question in your mind, and it is an important question for me, and I want to answer it. I don't want you to miss this very important thing. Some of you have said to me, how come, on the one hand, with one breath, he says, they come with Jesus. And then the next thing it says, the dead will rise first. Is this double talk? What does it mean? And I know even some who have cremated the loved ones are even more troubled by this. You know, what about cremation and all that stuff? Listen to me. Listen, listen, listen. Here's the important thing that you must understand about this great day. Listen carefully. We have already established that the believers in Jesus already in heaven, in a glorified body with Him, rejoicing, right? We already established that they're already there with Him. And again, here it says they're going to come with Him. So what does it mean? 
In fact, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if you've never read it, go home and spend time and read it. He talks about the believers when they go to heaven. He said they're not naked, meaning they're not souls floating around, not closed with the glorified body. But they're already closed, he said. So they already have their glorified body. You can't go to space without a space suit, and you will never be able to go to heaven without a glorified body. So you have to have that, whether you get it on the way up or you get it when you sleep. (laughs) And so, what does it mean? They come with him, but then they rose from the dead. Here's a very, very, it's much simpler than you think. It really is. (laughs) They will come with him in a glorified body (laughs) because they're already with him. But for us, who's still alive, or whoever's going to be still alive, whether us or next generation, it doesn't matter. But those who have said goodbye to the loved ones and laid them in the grave or took them to the crematorium, whatever happened to us, they're resurrected from the dead. You see, we'll see them alive, and therefore they were raised because they were raised first. They're already in the church of Jesus Christ in heaven. You see, it is that simple. It's far simpler than you think. It's not very complicated. They're going to come with him, and to us they are alive. They were risen from the dead. They're no longer in that grave. They're already with him. And that's all it means. The point that Paul is anxious to make for Thessalonians here and for us is this. It is the wonder of that great moment. Don't ever lose wonder of that great moment. Don't ever lose sight of the great moment. That's why he goes on to say, encourage one another. Talk about this. Don't, 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 don't think it's a morbid thing and, and don't talk about it in polite companies. It's only in polite companies you can talk about this. <laughs> Did you get that? This reunion with those who went earlier and those who are caught up with them. But there's something else I don't want you to miss. Something very important. When he said... We'll meet them in the air. It's not just meaning the space. Who is the prince of the air? Ephesians 2, 2. The devil and his demons, the prince of the air. It's his domain. It's a place where he operates freely. It's the place from which he misguides and misleads. It's the place from which he tempts. It's the place from which he deceives. That is the domain of Satan. And that is why we're going to meet each other in the air. We're going to take over his domain. His domain will be our domain. His kingdom will be our kingdom and the kingdom of our God. And the Bible said the kingdoms of the earth will be the kingdom of our God. And there will be with him forever. That is the ultimate reunion, the reunion of all reunion. Therefore, verse 18, encourage one another with these words. There may be one person who has never committed their life to Jesus Christ who has not experienced the joy of knowing that whether you die today or Jesus comes back today, you're going to be with Him in that great reunion. And you ask yourself that question, If that rapture happens today, will I be in the air, in the place of authority and power, reigning and ruling with Christ? Will I be left behind to face the judgment? Ask yourself that question, and don't rest until you answer it. There's some people who say, well, you're back yonder. I made a profession of faith, 
And I'm just, you know, that's, that's, I've taken care of that. No, no, no. That is not the Christian faith. We've been seeing this throughout the messages from First Thessalonians. It's walking with Christ, living for Christ, serving Christ, loving His appearing. That is the question. And if you haven't got to that point, you can today. You can begin today and continue the walk. But then for the believers who get so bogged down with this life, with bitterness and hatred and anger and frustrations, there's a reason why he said, encourage one another with these words. And I can tell you, thinking and remembering this great day, it doesn't matter how many problems I'm facing. It doesn't matter how many difficulties I face. It doesn't matter how many attacks I might receive. It doesn't matter what happens. I think of that day, all of my problems become minuscule in comparison. And that's what he's saying here. That's what he's saying here. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your word. Thank you for preserving it to these days in which we desperately need to hear it. And we need to live by it. And Father, I pray that if that person who has never walked with you before begins today, encourage them, support them. And Father, for the person who's getting bogged down with this life, they know deep down they know the Lord, but they're living as if they're going to be here forever, and that these problems will be forever. Remind us afresh. Help us to encourage one another of that great day. Help us to remind one another of that great day. For Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to this message from Dr. Michael Youssef, recently featured on Leading the Way. If you'd like to know more about us, please visit ltw.org. That's ltw.org.